0: Okay, I saw the button pushed. We have a new protocol now. We have all kinds of people in authority. And what could possibly go wrong by adding more authoritarian, totalitarian instincts to them? Oh, oh, I gotta say this really fast before I go. Uh, June the 10th, 2018, Lecture Discussion Number 26 on the Book of Joel, uh, I got this letter from Kurt, who operates uh, a myriad of our of our websites, I would guess they're called, or are places where people can find the lectures here. He says to Lori, he said, Lori, this nice lady helped keep us from potentially losing our cliffside.org domain registration. If Steve could elegantly, for him, <laughs> there's the, a little disclaimer, work it in. She's probably deserving of an honorable mention at the beginning of one of the sermons. Uh, and this was uh, Deborah. Hi, Deborah. Uh, Deborah noticed that our website went down for a few days and alerted us, and so we are very grateful for that. And, Deborah, we will eat uh, some kind of Kentucky Fried Chicken next week in your honor. Uh, Probably not, but I'm giving it a try here, whatever I can do. But thank you very much, all of the folks out there that recognize that problem. I was not among them at all. I have no idea what's going on, as you know, intentionally so. So, where was I? June the 10th, 2018, lecture discussion number 26 on the book of Joel. And perhaps you have noticed that I have been pounding away on the mysteries of time. And it is not an accident. And how could you not have noticed, aside from the usual deep sleep states that I induce by doing these kinds of subjects. And last Sunday I made some pretty bold claims for a one-eyed, balding, fat man. I said, and I'll wait the deluge of criticisms from the usual opponents uh, to my propositions, but I made a lot of statements about time and I know that eventually that gets out there and they come back and tell me that I am, what's the word I want, bereft of intelligence. By deluge I should say this, I mean one, maybe two guys. That's usually all I get from this, uh, from the vast internet audience. And that could be an indication, and I think it is so, that the vast internet audience is less vast than I might. Then uh, the statistics reveal, let me say this. Uh, Kurt, who I just mentioned, said on one website in the last two years, he sent me the statistics for it. In the last 24 months, there was 152,000 downloads. So that's just one site. Uh, and I don't know how that all works. Uh, I hope I'm representing it correctly. And if I'm not, Kurt will um, will correct me. We do not have any accounting system on Cliffside.org at all. I know that. And uh, Facebook is interesting. Some of them are well-received. Others are uh, avoided at all costs. So it's a mixed bag there. And I think Sermon Audio, is, is it over 90,000 now? It is over 90,000. So between those, just those two sites, we're in, in, in pretty high areas there. YouTube crossed 20,000. Okay, Well, the you folks out on the Internet that are supporting this, it is you that are doing it. And, of course, uh, the folks here, Supper Dave and his uh, intrepid wife, who is willing to work with him. It's really amazing. She has to have control, of course, but it's still nonetheless amazing. Okay, where am I? I know I'm going to get some people... But I'm not going to get very many that, uh, that come back at me for what I said last week or what I'm going to say this week. And I can and I do interpret the lack of contestation, the unwillingness to debate from those who hold contrary positions that I, uh, I guess, illuminated. That might not be the correct word, but the positions that I. Uh, displayed last week, and they are those positions. As you know, are on the deity of Christ, and I see those that the unwillingness to debate it is actually a good thing. I think it is confirmation. I think it is affirmation of the positions that uh, this church and that we hold with regard to the deity of Christ. In other words, the arguments presented that. On the origins of time, the origins of language and mathematics and gravity and matter and energy and consciousness and life and light. I do it in a very definitive way. I make, there's no room for equivocation. I propose that they are absolutely overwhelmingly factual. And then I wait for people to argue with me and I hardly get any arguments. Very, very few. And again, I think that that is affirmation. And you know I believe what I say absolutely, resolutely. It would be a better word. And let me re-articulate it as best I can quickly. And what I propose is that Jesus Christ himself is the singular source of all of those things that I have given you. Language, mathematics, gravity, matter, energy, consciousness, life, light. And others. He is the source of them. He is the origin. There is no other origin. There is no other source. No other source or origin is even possible for those things. And that is John 1 3 through 4. In case you wonder where I get it. Where John says, definitively, through the Holy Spirit guiding him, that all things were made through Jesus Christ. He made them all. Without Him, nothing was made that was made. In Him was life and light and that is John 8:12 he is the light of life christ even says that's who he is he is the light of life he made light and he is light that's what i say here and i believe that the the evidence in scripture is again beyond Dispute. There can be no controversy. The implications of John 1, 3 through 4 and John 8, 12 are incredible. And they naturally progress and lead the persons who read those that to Jesus Christ being the creator of all things. Everything. It's a basic logic math. Exercise. And that's who Christ is. Now, there are Protestants to the absolute Godhood of Christ. Many Protestants. And there are far, far more of them than there are of us, and it isn't even close. And they hold that the Bible clearly uh, does not teach this. We say that the Bible is overwhelmingly obvious, apparent, that there is a triune nature of God. Three persons, one God, and they're all equal. That's Philippians 2.6. The word is equality. Equality in all aspects. Equality in sameness, in oneness, in size, in quantity, in quality, in character, and number. That is what Philippians 2.6, and that's what John 1.3-4, John 8.12. All of them say the same thing. Christ himself said it. Christ is the invisible made visible, Colossians 1.15. I hope that's right. Let me double check. Yes. And as obvious as that is to us, the other side is convinced otherwise. The other side is absolutely resolute that Jesus Christ is inferior He is not God, and not only is he not God, but he is inferior to God, and he is forever subordinated. He is forever inferior. And some of those people that believe that insist that Christ is also created, and that, of course, makes them a cult. That would be your Jehovah's Witnesses and your Mormons. Not wishing to offend anyone, but the Jehovah's Witnesses and the Mormons are desperately, miserably delusional. And it is love to tell them so. They think that Christ is created. They think he is finite. He is capable of sin. He is separated from God. Distinct individuals. And it is, uh, all of that falls under the heading in, in doctrinal theology as the peccable view of Christ. Now, some will say, well, wait a minute, we don't hold these non-God positions. Well, you say that Christ is capable of sin uh, and that he, is, uh, he can be separated from the Godhood. Well, you are in very, very deep water, as deep as water can be doctrinally. And that's the peccable view of Christ versus the impeccable, which is, of course, what this church holds. And to repeat, this belief is not merely common. It is the prevailing belief of Christendom. Now, there are a lot of organizations, as you know, in Christendom. You have to separate Christian doctrine, Christian truth from dumb. That makes sense. And yes, I will spell it for you. Christian, Christian dumb. In case you were wondering I just want you to know that to believe that Christ is not fully absolute total God sameness in quality and quantity and size character if you believe that then you are in heresy you are in blasphemy <coughs> if you don't believe Did I say it badly? I probably did. If you don't believe that Christ is in size and quantity and quality and character and number and equal and sameness and oneness with the triune Godhead, uh, if you do not believe that, then you are in heresy. And it degrades the truth of Christ. And as Bill the Cow was saying, i got a bunch of questions. Why are you calling Bill the Cow? I have to explain that sometimes. I won't do it now, but I can explain it. Bill the Cow said it's insulting to God. It is absolutely standing in his face and saying something that is so disrespectful as to be evil. To say that Christ is not God is to oppose directly what he says about himself in Revelation 1. 1 through 18. It's the reason that Christ is not inside the final church of the Gentile age, which is the vomited out church. That's Revelation 3:14 through 20. We are in the time of the vomit church. We find ourselves in the midst of the time of the vomit church. We're not at the beginning. I'm believing that we are at the end of the time of the vomit church. And knowing that we are in the time of the vomit church, it is incumbent on us to know why the church is called the vomit church at this age. What's wrong? Why does Christ vomit them out? Because he says he does He is outside of the church knocking on the door. And... um, And uh, this issue is why I have begun, why I'm drawn, I have been drawn to it throughout my whole so-called career. I want to make the case for the obviousness of the infinity of Christ. Because I think that is where the most, how do I put this? The clearest understanding of the person of Christ lies for those who haven't got this figured out. Christ's infinity is very important, of the utmost importance in my view. It's the mathematics of infinity that is so valuable also to us. One could also call the topic the why of infinity. Why is he infinite? He has to be infinite, and he says he's infinite. Why is he infinite, or the necessity of infinity? You want to think of it that way. The necessity of Christ's infinity dissolves these arguments against his deity. It just it, it wipes them out. It's like a flamethrower. That is why I pursue it so often, and I bore you with all of these things. And I know it's difficult, and I understand that it is, but I also recognize why it is so important. When you grasp the infinity of Christ, uh, it as I said, it just absolutely eliminates the counter-arguments of those who insist Christ is not God himself and not the Lord God Almighty. And as you're coming to realize, all discussions on infinity are math discussions. And they gravitate, all of these discussions on infinity gravitate to the origin of time, because most people think math is infinite and time is infinite. The truth is, Christ is infinite. Who has more infinity? This is a dumb question, it would fit in Christian dumb. Which is greater, math's infinity or Christ's infinity? Does Christ think that math is infinite? Does Christ think that time is infinite? He would know. He's infinite. He says he is the beginning and the end what does that mean he's the beginning and the end of some things but not all things or would you suspect that he is the beginning and the end of all things well I think the latter is obvious so if he is the beginning and the end of all things then where is math where is time So all discussions of infinity become math. They become time discussions and language discussions and consciousness and existence discussions. But we're not doing all of those today. We're stuck at time. I could have said in time, but I just say at time. And the goal today is to get the train moving again. Because I have stuck the train, I've run off the tracks. I would say, to use this the metaphor. Or continue the metaphor. As all well, you know, I was a former uh, locomotive electrician. That's what my title was. As a young man, I gravitated to be the superintendent of the electrical uh, department for the Alaska Railroad. Again, as a young man, I went from there to be a school teacher. It was a career decision, there's no question about that, but you couldn't have convinced me otherwise. And I worked on something called a GP40-2 and a GP50X. GP50X was a experimental locomotive at the time that I was there, but I saw I had access to the plans for it. And there are those on the internet who will care deeply about these things. They will. And I began on F7s. Converting F7As to Genesco transition systems. That was one of my first, uh, I would call it, uh, systems of complexity that I uh, I had to deal with. And that's just for those who, again, on the internet who care. That is an electronic motor control. Locomotives are electric trains. Did you know that? In other words, there's a big diesel, diesel engine and attached to that engine is a generator. Now it's an alternator and it's converted through uh, diodes and other systems to bring it to uh, DC. They are direct current systems as well, much like uh, large ships. So, the the, the way the w- wheels turn is there are traction motors. And the generator provides the current and the voltage to the traction motors. It moves the motor. The motor has a pinion gear and the pinion gear aligns with the axle, and the axles turn, the wheels, and it's all a big electric train. So the electrical department of the Alaska Railroad is an essential, is a critical department. The machinists would argue otherwise, but no one thinks the heavy equipment department or, or the boilermakers matter. No, we don't care about them. Or the carpenters, you're kidding me. It's the electricians and the machinists fight over who's the most important. But I, while I was there, I was given the opportunity to study every facet of the GP40-2. That was made by General Motors, Electromotive Division of General Motors. And I was given that opportunity because I had a fairly extensive electronics uh, physics uh, education. And what was fascinating to me, that was the -the state-of-the-art locomotive. They still run them today. Those are the 4,000 class, no, the 3,000 class, sorry, locomotives. You'll see them. They have numbers that begin with 3,000. The 3,001, the 3,010, they're 3,000 horsepower um, entities or devices, if you will. I don't know if the 4,000 class locomotives that are on display now are 4,000 horsepower or not. I have been removed from the Alaska Railroad for so, so long, since the 1980s early 80s but I was allowed to because again I had this education that was directly related I was allowed to look at a GP 40-2 top to bottom my job was to memorize the schematic diagram and I did that and it's huge absolutely massive page after page after page my job was to memorize everything in it and be able to draw it from memory if I could I spent a lot of time doing that. And that was a, an outstanding opportunity. The Alaska Railroad at that time had 1940 Alcos, probably 1935 Alcos. Uh, um, an Alco was American Locomotive Company. And they were very basic machines. But they had them simultaneously with the GP40-2. So that would be like biplanes and F-22s or something, F-18s. So that's what I had there. I had the old and what the new was doing. It was an incredible, again, valuable lesson for a young idiot that I was, seeing how the technology changed from this thing to this incredible device. And believe it or not, someone out there will know what I'm talking about, and they will think it's really cool. My first voltage regulator to repair was a carbon pile regulator. I replaced the carbon piles and put in new carbon piles, and the regulator would squeeze together when the voltage got too high from the generator. Therefore, there'd be less resistance, and then it would it would pull apart when the voltage got too high. This thing is made in 1920s. Edison... Probably worked on the same altar regulator that I did. And it was, again, amazing. Anyway, I bring this up because railroads, and I am a railroad expert. Did I, Did I do a good job? You cannot get away from railroads and time. I was going to bring my dad's railroad watch today. I didn't do it. He has a watch that was made in 1894. He bought it in 19... I'm going to do the math really fast. Probably 1930. And he had to have it. You have to have a watch in those days on, a, on any railroad system. He worked for the St. Louis, Missouri Pacific Railroad. And he had this beautiful Illinois watch made in 1894. Kept it kept an in incredible time, and it was authorized to be a locomo- I'm sorry a railroad watch. Because if you don't know what time it is when you're working for the railroad, what's gonna to happen to you? Yeah, you're gonna get run over. That's what's gonna happen. You know you have to know when to get on the track and when to get off the track. And I was gonna bring that watch and show you that thing. It's an incredible piece of equipment. As you know, the trains must run on time. Politicians are always promising to make the trains run on time. Politicians, I believe, are collectively the least cognizant of the implications and the consequences of time. That's why Social Security is a Ponzi scheme is gonna go bankrupt before I can get to it. And that's why the public employee pension obligations are all going to go down the toilet because they are so huge and they don't have enough time. They're going to have to monetize them have to print money. I'm digressing anyway. The point is, yea, a point, there generally exists a vacuum with respect to the discussion of time, especially in the church. The church, as its custom is now, has a loathing for the subject of time, and I, therefore, am naturally inclined to go the opposite direction. That's why I'm doing this. It's a sad state for the church to concede the nature of time to secular philosophy. It's called the philosophy of time and the physics community. But we have done it. And that is a terrible tragedy. The Bible, your Bible, as we should expect, contains the explanations for time. It is where time is described. The origin of time, the purposes of time, the meaning of time is in here. You can't find these answers anywhere else. No one has them, only Scripture. Scripture solves the great mysteries of time. Everyone in philosophy school will tell you the time is an unexplainable mystery. Except that's not true. The Bible explains it, solves it, resolves it. Why the church, with this amazing piece of information... That is life changing when you understand what, this truth, what these truths are. Why the church refuses to declare that they have possession of it. That's long been an irritant to me. I know why. We have the solutions. Christians have the solutions to the mysteries of creation. God has revealed them to the wise, Daniel twelve ten. Of course, foremost is the answer to the secrets of consciousness. You are a conscious, free will being. The Bible tells you how that is so and why that is so. It explains sentience and self-awareness and existence and will. Why they are in place. Not just that they are in place. It does say that, that they are in place, but it tells you why they are in place. Why we are designed as we are. What we are and why we're that way. And why is of utmost importance. Why is crucial. You know, this entire presentation series that I have done over the years... I always am trying to get you to look at the whys of things, not just respond to the what. The Bible possesses the whys of life. If you have any questions about your life, what it is, how it came to be, what's its destiny, that's in the Bible. And the church doesn't care. When I say the church, I mean the Laodicean age, doesn't care, won't talk about it. So there's the most obvious of the obvious questions. Why not? Why does the church insist on stories and fables and simple nonsense when the great mysteries are in plain view and people are desperate to hear them? It is almost like the church has all the food and everyone is starving and the church says, well, let them starve. Why are they doing that? Okay? For today, I want you to recall as best you can, those of you who have been here, the position that time is merely a construction of human consciousness. Do you remember me saying that a while back? That is a strong position. In other words, time is not real. It's an illusion, and it is something that comes out of the minds of human beings. They will subtract animals from it, but I guarantee you, my brown lab will know what time it is. And he will go to the window waiting for me and Lori to come home. He knows what time we're supposed to come home. Now, they, however, say no, that it is only... Uh, at only, time only originates in human consciousness, as opposed to time being an independent entity. Okay? So those are your two positions, and you have to, I know you don't want to, but I'm going to force you to do it. You have to decide which one is correct, which one does the Bible support. So let's ask a few questions about this. This will be really fun. Who believes that? Not a single one. Good, Good. I've done my job. What's that? You're not focusing your cam. Oh, oh, I'm sorry. Yeah. Crazy Becky is saying that we're not properly monetizing our advertising system here. So there we go. Has that better? Good, good. Okay. Thank you for, for that. And there's a tremendous amount of revenue comes through. Yes, sir? I, I couldn't. Have? Oh, is it really? Okay, well, that would, that, I am the ones that established that. Actually, I can tell you the guy that did that was Jerry Peters. So he was the electrical superintendent before me, ended up being master mechanic. Does that mean anything to you, master mechanic? It's underneath general manager of the, um, of the mechanical department. Anyway, <sighs> where was I? Again, somebody will know that and they will write me and they'll be really thrilled. Curly Randall was my first general manager. Not general manager, no. He was, the, uh, he was the head of the mechanical department. I can't remember his title anymore. Doggone it. I'll get, I'll get accused of being an idiot again. Where am I? Let's ask a few questions about time. Questions that have been around for centuries. This is Greek philosophy. People have been asking these questions for thousands of years. So let's suppose now, here's a thought experiment. So everybody stay with me as long as you can. Put your phones down for just a second. Let's imagine that uh, all motion ceases. All motion, everything, no motion, everything is in a state of suspension, locked in place. Just imagine a complete frozen environment. And that might remind you a little bit of Revelation 9, 6. That's the first of the three woes. The abeyance of physical death for 150 days. Christ removes physical death for 150 days during the tribulation. All physical death is under a moratorium. The authority, the creator of the world, uh, essentially issues a legal decree and removes physical death. And he holds it, he freezes it, Uh, For five months. Now imagine that he does this with all motion. He stops motion, completely stops it. I'm proposing a similar condition to uh, the 150 day moratorium on physical death, but we're doing it with motionlessness, which means there's no velocity, there's no acceleration. Everything and every being, all molecular activity, has to be stopped at the molecular level, doesn't it? All molecular activity brought to a full, complete stop. And for this to occur, the entire creation has to be affected. Think that through on your own. I'll keep going. In this century-old thought experiment, and let's reduce the focus just to Earth, though, to make it simpler for us, everything is affected. That means birds... Freeze in the air. Stop. Stop in flight. The ocean, the fish, the water, nothing moves. There's no rain, there's no wind. Or the raindrops, if they were occurring, and they would be, they will freeze in the air. Not snow. Not what we call snow here in Alaska. They will stop where they're located. All things, all beings, every manufactured machine instantly halted, in place, a worldwide ceasing. So imagine that. By the way, and I wrote down, by the way, I did. I wrote, by the way, and then I said that I wrote down, by the way, knowing that I would violate the by the way edict. By saying, by the way. Is the by the way regulation, prohibition violated if it is intentionally breached? that's what I did. It went ahead and assigned penalty to me. But is it really violated if I do it intentionally? I'm asking for a friend. So I'm thinking that maybe we need to convene the Cliffside Legal Defense Authority. We do have one. Cliffside Legal Defense Authority. They handle all the lawsuits here. They're very good at it. We have never lost a dime yet. These people are fantastic. Anyway. Where in the Bible does it speak of the suspending of God's natural laws? Motion being one of them. Where? You can tell me, because it does. He stopped the sun, and that's right. Joshua 10, 12 through 14. How do you stop the sun? Is the sun hurtling through space? Yes, it is. Are we circling the sun? Yeah, the orbiting system is there, absolutely. He's not only stopped the sun, he stopped the moon. And he says this, no day like that before or after it in the midst of heaven. Also, Second 2 Kings 20.10. He does something similar. He reverses something. So this has been in Scripture. God is ahead of us once more. How lucky can he be? And when he stopped the sun, let me just do this. Most people think that he stopped it in order to allow Joshua to fight before it got dark. And I think the opposite is the case. No one wanted to fight in those days under that sun. That was a hot sun. I think the evidence is the opposite. The fighting was at dusk and dawn. And so uh, he stopped the sun from rising, if you will, if you want to think of the sun rising. Obviously, that's a Ruth, an earth rotational event, right? But uh, that, just throw that in there. So this op, this concept that I gave you today is obviously very ancient. It is something that God has done and discussed, in which case we should investigate it. Why would he do this? There are reasons for him doing it, and he would know the implication, the consequences that go in, in all directions. But we're not going to do that today. Just stick with the absolute ending of all motion. And if I end all motion, what have else have I ended? I have ended change. There is no motion and there is no change. Nothing changes now. Motion and change are connected. They are uh, cause and effect, if you wish. The immediate obvious question then arises, how long does it remain like this, in this frozen suspension of motion and change state? What is the duration? How much time do you want this to be the case? One year? One day? One minute? How about if you froze for a million years and then you were, we were all restored? See, this, this is a philosophical question. And you, would we know it? Would we know that a million years had passed while we were frozen? This happens to me pretty much every day. I freeze mentally for about 30 minutes every day, and then I'm shocked to find out what time it is. But now it's expanded. What if we absolutely were frozen? Everything was stopped and then restarted. Would we know how much time has passed? It gets into the continuity of the soul, doesn't it? Do you understand why that would be the case? the Bible explicitly says there is continuity of the soul, which means that when you die, your mind, your spirit, your intellect, your consciousness, your memory continues. It does not stop. It's not frozen. So this discussion will get into death, won't it? Notice that time, every time we talk about time, ha, 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 we have to talk about motion, change, and death. So here's a better, immediate, obvious question. If it's conceivable that a length of time could pass with no change, how many of you think it's conceivable? I just conceived it, so therefore it's conceivable, right? How many of you think that time could pass with no change, with no motion occurring? If you think that's true, what did you just say about time? What have you conceded about time? To phrase this issue in a different manner. If time has been suspended, frozen, and I just said, I inferred that there is a period of time or a length of time where all motion and change has ceased. And I asked you how long it was and how much time passed During this incident, what did you just decide if you agreed with me on that? Yes, sir. Time is, uh, is illustrated by motion and by change. Does it move itself is an excellent question. It's called the flow of time. Isaac Newton thought time had motion. So that's not bad company. But you're getting ahead of me. I'm only on page eight. If it can be considered that an interval of time can exist, can occur without any motion or change, then what is time now? It is independent from the events that fill it. Does that make sense? Let me keep going. That's a significant conclusion, and we'll debate more on this later, but it's an unbelievable conclusion. If time can exist without motion and change, then time... I'm sorry, let me say, let me go the other way. If time cannot exist without motion and change, then time is dependent on the events that are inside of it. Do you see the difference? Does time continue? If all motion and change end, then there is no motion and ta- change, then I'm asking, does empty time exist? Does that make sense? Is time autonomous? Is it self-sustaining? This bill just asked, does it exist if there is a vacant, a vacuousness, a, a vacuum of events? Does empty time exist? Or does it have to have motion and change in order to exist? Is, it, is time reliant on motion and changes and therefore ceases if motion and change cease? Is that the case? And ultimately, as you know, this is Isaac Newton and Albert Einstein. Newton saw time as absolute, continually flowing, irrespective of any and all influence. He saw empty time. He considered time to be a container, and the container keeps going whether or not something is put in the container. That is not Einstein. He said, "Time is only is something that is made by the human mind." He declared time to be an illusion, something that is attributed. To the consciousness of mankind. So which of those two positions does the Bible say is true? Do you know? I could walk into a hundred churches in this city, ask that question, and no one has ever even thought of it. Much less considered it, much less has a position on it. Has any idea what the Bible says? That is a travesty and a tragedy for the church. That is a... Shirking of responsibility. The Bible talks about this. It says something. Now, feel free to form your own opinion on your own time. Ah. While I'll continue. Continuance is a time reference. Let's talk about now. I want you to consider now and define what now is. What is now? How long is now? Sounds like a comedy routine, doesn't it? Can now be determined by human beings? I am speaking to you. Do you hear me now? Yes or no? No is correct. Because in the time it takes for your brain to receive the audio information that traveled to you from my vocal cords, goes through your ear structure, is recorded in the chemistry of your brain, and your mind interprets it and puts intentionality meaning to it, how long is that from now? Are you defining now as when you think now is, or when I actually said now? Who's right about now? Your recognition of me saying now, or me saying now? How long does it take for me to say now from the time that I decide to say now? Let's put me on a mountain a mile away, ten miles away, with this incredible vocal system that I possess. It's already hoarse, thank you for the time. (laughs) <laughs> Those of you who are concerned that I won't pay attention to the time. I'm being constantly reminded of what time it is by a highly trained professional with a really bad attitude. Okay. Let's imagine that I am on a mountain ten miles away and you have the capacity through magnification to see me and hear me. Big giant receiving systems. And I scream now. How long before you hear now in your mechanical electrical device and then understand that I said now? Ready, go. What's the speed of sound? What's the medium in which the sound's being transmitted? Is it in a vacuum? Is it being transmitted through water vapor, snow? What's the humidity? Barometric pressure. How long is now? And now, sends us back to trains, railroads, and clocks, are time, distance, and velocity. You will begin to recognize that distance over time is velocity. That becomes very important to Christians. <coughs> God has set a clock in motion. It's very important to note. That he is saying something about time when he did it. He did it in Genesis 1, 14 through 19. That's the fourth day, right? He put a clock. Now, time, I'm going to say to you, existed before he did this. I think that is clear and obvious. But he does put a clock. He winds it up. And he pushes the button, and now he's keeping track of a specific period of time. And I, as you know, think that that is after the fall of Satan. So he put a clock, he set it for the entire angelic host to see, and pushed the button. Now, you would recognize it as the sun and the moon. But I want you to think of it as the, the incredible Creation that he did on the fourth day. He created particle light. Photons, if you wish. And the angelic host went, oh my. Because they had not seen particle light before. No one had seen particle light before. On the fourth day, photons, that is the origin of particle light, is on the fourth day. That is extraordinary. We want to know when the origins are, and this is when the origin of particle light is, on the fourth day. He makes photons and reveals it to the angelic host. As opposed to Genesis 1-3, Right? Because one three, I do not have particle oh, I'm spitting on the audience again. I do not have particle light at Genesis one three. What do I have? I have primable light. This is created light. This is uncreated light. What's the obvious question? I have on the first day uncreated light, the light of life, John eight twelve. Christ says, I am this uncreated light. That means something profound in Scripture. That's why it's impossible for me to understand the people that do not know who Christ really is. This is the issue that has kept him out of the church of our time. Particle light is created. Primoval light is not created. Particle light, therefore, isn't it obvious, is a symbol, is a representation of the primoval light, the glory of the Lord. So, in other words, he creates particle light, and he even says so to you, and he says this is a type of the uncreated light. That's what he's doing. We can draw uh, conclusions about the primal light from the analysis of particle light. I can figure out what Christ is like, what this, this uncreated light is like by looking at the created light. That's why looking at light is so valuable to us. Do I have a relationship between light and time? Absolutely, I do. There's an amazing opportunity for discovery of truths. And I submit that the error of physics, wait for the mail, the error of physics has always been their misunderstanding about photon light. They don't know what the purpose of the photon light is. The photon light has a purpose. We need to know what it is. The physics community has no understanding. Physics are often quoted as saying that physicists are as saying this. And they wear t-shirts. Physics is everything. That's what they say. No. The physical is not everything. I know it right there. The Bible tells me. Physical. Created. Uncreated. No, physics is not everything. The physical is not everything. The physical, though it's an incomprehensible masterpiece, and it is, it's only one part of the creation. The true reality is the spiritual reality. It isn't the photons that we should know. We can look at the photons. We can look at particle light. We can see what it does. And then that will teach us about who? Jesus Christ. It's what he's doing, and that is the error of physics. They're, they're, They're right here. All they see is this. They don't know that that is a representation of the primal light. The angels did. Knew it immediately. Boom. Genesis 2.7. And the Lord God formed man of the dust of the ground. That's the physical body. And... Then it says and I'll say then and then breathed into his nostrils the breath of life and man became a living soul. It's a two part dualistic dualism. It's a dualistic process. I get the body, and then the breath of life, the living soul, the consciousness, the mind, the will, the spirit. Physics isn't everything. Without consciousness, it can be argued successfully, I might add, that physics is nothing. If I don't have consciousness, what good is the physics? The physical reality. It takes consciousness to experience it. Consider the relationship, the connection between the primal light and the particle light and the living soul, and the breath of life. I'm sorry, the living soul, breath of life, and the physical body. I want you to look at this as the spirit, and this as the body. Because I believe that it is obvious that he is drawing that connection. I believe this Positioning this attaching of the primal light to the photon light, and the body to the soul, to the spirit, to the consciousness, to the mind. This is uh, uh, so clear, and he did it in front of those who witnessed the creation, the angelic realm. Job thirty-eight seven had never seen particle light before, and. The angels, the unfallen and the fallen, saw the formation of particle light. They knew about the primal light and they knew what the the particle light was doing and they knew why it was made. And you see uh, Revelation 22, 1 through 5. I can't can't do it now, but he changes all of this back. He gets rid of the sun and the moon and darkness and all we have is this light. So in other words, the representation is removed. It, it, It expires. And we have the primal light only. Don't have time to read it. We'll read it next, next week. This is the eternal state. No lamp, no light of the sun, no darkness. The Lord gives light himself. Jesus Christ is the light. The particle light ends. The primal light is restored in its rightful place. And particle light, again, was designed to be replaced. It's a type. It's a portrait of the light of life. It's a clock. A light clock, light and time are conjoined, as you know. And the phys- physics community is focused singularly on the photon light. That's a fundamental error. It's an exclusion of the true light. If you exclude the true or the eternal light, that's to fail miserably. But mankind loves that, don't they? They love the physical. They worship the created. They, they're they blind to the cre. I'm sorry, they worship the created, the creature, and they're blind to the creator. Romans 1, 25. Why does man so desire to only see the creature and not the creator? We're going to have to pursue that. And that sends us back to moving trains and clocks. And this is the part of the lecture where I astonish you with my skills, artistic skills. I have a train and a passenger car. This is a locomotive system here. And there is a train operator, not an engineer. Train operator. Engineer has to go to college. Train operator has to be related to somebody who was a train operator. It's called a father-son union. Same as the police and the fire department. Here's my train. I know it's incredible. Here's a passenger car back here. Okay. this is what the hunters used to shoot at. And so we had to build a. Never mind. We call it a dome car, if you like. There is a guy sitting here. Here he is. And he has a clock. You can't see the clock, but trust me, it's a clock and it's beautifully drawn. At the same time, I have a guy standing here and he has a clock also. Little ringer on top. There's his clock. So I have one in a train, and it's moving. This is a moving train. And this is Alaska, so the roadbed is heaved and uh, just an absolute mess. And nothing can go over 50 miles an hour safely up here, but we'll do it anyway. It's just because it's thrilling. But whatever you want to do, let's just assume the train is going this way. And he's on the train, and he sees this guy who sees him. So imagine a man with a clock on a moving train, a train moving at a uniform, constant velocity. And as you know from riding a car, you're going to ride in a car. If you're moving at a non-varying speed and everything within the vehicle, then the frame of reference, if you will, is stationary. And you know that because you have a drink of soda or you pour something while you're moving in your car. So you are in a stationary frame of reference. That makes sense. If you accelerate, of course, you spill the drink. So I'm saying it's got to be uniform. It's got to be constant. There is no acceleration. There is no change of direction. So imagine that train can't be an Alaskan train is operating at the same speed. It's on cruise control. It's on flat ground. And it's really smooth. Not the Alaska Railroad. Big joke in the railroad business. Why do you call yourselves the ARR? Because nobody else does that. Santa Fe is written on the engines. Santa Fe is written on the cars. Because it's obvious it's a railroad. But we in Alaska, we're such idiots that we put Alaska Railroad in case you think it's a boat. Makes no sense. But we used to always get brutalized for that. But it's too late to change it because the logos cost too much money and we all have a hat. Now, where was I? You're in a car and you can pour a Diet Coke into a glass and you can toss a ball back and forth. So you're in a stationary frame of reference. Again, constant velocity, no change of direction, no acceleration. It's a condition of motionlessness. It's a stationary status achieved within the vehicle. And for all things in the vehicle, inside the vehicle, you're in a relative motionless state. Does that make sense? Hope it does. Where does motion come from? What is the origin of motion? What causes motion? Okay, just threw that in for fun. The train, having ridden hundreds of trains, as I said, is not motionless. But just go with me because it's such beautiful artwork. We're raising thousands of dollars right here in front of you. Spray that with some kind of urethane to save it. Imagine a smooth train and a man and a clock. And from his former frame of reference, the train is stationary and the ground is moving. Does that make sense? He's looking around. The ground is passing him by. So the ground is moving and he is staying stationary. And he knows he's stationary because he can throw a ball up in the air and it's going to come right back to him, isn't it? It's not going to go this way or that way without acceleration change of direction. Throw it up, I can throw a football to Brady in the back on my train. He can catch it, he can throw it back to me. We're in a stationary environment, frame of reference. And to so... So you got this guy with a clock and that guy with a clock, and the train's going by. So the person in the train thinks the guy standing here is moving backwards, right? And the guy standing here thinks the train's going forward. Which one's right? Both men with their clocks claim to be still, and both can prove they're still. They're motionless. And this is, as you know, a precept of physics. All observers can claim to be stationary. It's a premise of relativity, constant velocity, stationary perspective. Everyone can insist, and everyone does insist, I'm not the moving one. You're on a sphere that's going through space, and we all say we're not moving. Now, in my little example, I usually add more trains at different speeds moving in different directions, but we're running out of time. And i got guys in cars running, going everywhere, and I've got guy on a merry-go-round, and all of them have clocks. And the question becomes, what time is it? Because motion and time have a relationship. Clocks and motion run differently than clocks that are stationary. Why is that? Let's just list the fundamental principles of relativity and see where they go today. Space and time are combined. They're fused. There's no such thing as a distinct time and a distinct space in physics. They are together. They call it space time. You can't separate time from space. So when you're walking through time, I'm sorry, when you're walking through space, you're also walking through time. Cannot separate them. When we move, go into motion, and the Earth is in motion, the solar system is in motion, the galaxy is in motion, the whole creation is in motion. When we move, we are moving through space and time. Now they'll describe them as uh, different directions. So that would be time, for example, and this would be space. So I don't have to. I can move through space and and not cause much time, or I can move through time and not move through much space, or I can move through both. You see that. Vectoring all the time. More on that later. The laws of physics. As an aside, almost said by the way. The laws of physics. Where? What's the origin of the laws of physics? The precepts of physics. All laws of physics apply. They're the same for all observers irrespective of location. So they're the same for this guy and they're the same for that guy. The speed of particle light is the same for all observers, irrespective of the position or the traveling speed of those observers. So if I if he shines, if this guy shines a light this way, he's got a light on his locomotive and a bell. I used to fix the bells and a horn. But if he shines the light, that light is the same. 186 miles. I know that's American per second. It's the same as this guy. So that light does not travel any faster because the locomotive is going 60 miles an hour and about to crash in Alaska. Nothing can exceed the speed of particle light. That's what the physics say. The Bible says the speed of particle light is called the lesser light. The sun is called the lesser light. Or actually I'm sorry, the moon is called the lesser light. The sun is called the greater light. I said that really badly. Isn't that interesting? Make a better sun. Does the sun is the sun happy? I think it is. Sun the greater light. The moon the lesser light. One is the primable light. The other one is the particle light. Genesis 1:14 through 19 is a lot more complex than we have been told. We move through space and time. We cannot exceed the speed of light. What's the obvious question? Why not? Why can't we exceed the speed of particle light? It seems to be a fundamental property of space-time. You cannot exceed, you can move through space and time, but you cannot exceed the speed of light when you do so. No one knows why. They just say it's so. Where do you suppose it says it's so? Where do you suppose you can learn why you cannot exceed the speed of particle-based light? Who has the answer to that? No physicist can explain that. I know this last section was absolutely uh, the most powerful sleep aid in the history of preaching. But I'm starting to make you consider what's going on with light and time of consciousness, velocity, frame of reference. All of these things are in the Bible. All of them. The physicists didn't discover these or even articulate them. It's the Bible that did that. All they've done is change the vocabulary. In the weeks to come, you will know why. I hope. Those of you who still can move, have motion. Rise and be dismissed.